Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hi, I'm Jonathan Aberman. Coming up on today's show, igniting human potential. And we do that through all of our entrepreneurial programs, but I think ultimately that's what we see we're doing. We're igniting human potential around the world. And, and I think that we're excited to have that come here to Washington, D.C., we pioneered the public-private partnership, particularly when it comes to data. I mean, this was not a given 15, 20 years ago when the company started. Uh, in those days, uh, the National Weather Service operated their own sensor networks and collected their own data. It's not one or two big levers. It's more like 101% solutions choreographed and organized in a setting where it can be done successfully again and again and again. Another great show with opportunities to learn how people are getting it done here in the D.C. region. Many agree that entrepreneurship, the ability to start a new business, is essential to create the jobs of tomorrow. What's less often discussed is that supporting an entrepreneur to start a restaurant is, in fact, some ways similar and many ways different from helping somebody start a software company. Our next guest is Sean Griffin. He's CEO of GriffinWorks, an organization that has been bringing tools for entrepreneurship to people around the world literally, and is now relocating its business to Washington, D.C. Sean, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank well, you. Well, tell us about GriffinWorks. So GriffinWorks is one of the largest business building organizations in the world with over 100,000 businesses that we've been part of helping support, grow, and build. Uh, we run a portfolio of entrepreneurial programs, that is programs that help train and develop and provide tools to entrepreneurs um, in over 60 countries currently. Um, and we are headquartered uh, here in Washington, D.C., which makes a lot of sense as a, a place to look out from the world, right. uh, towards the world. You're in the Middle East, you're in Africa, you're spending a lot of time in this organization working in what I would call less developed, disadvantaged communities. Why is it that that's where you started your business? Why did you start there? My passion really is in supporting anyone, any idea, any background, any education level to design, test, and build a business at the core of what we do. What we found is that the demand for the kind of services we provide were greater in South America, Africa, MENA, uh, Middle East, North Africa, and Asia. And so uh, all of our work pretty much is taken off by word of mouth. And my experience is that generally that's the way things work in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Most of us learn about what makes sense from talking with one another, right. not and from the, advertising. And the entrepreneurial ecosystem space globally is rel relatively small. I mean, you could probably stick 400 people into a room and you are actually with the core stakeholders of the world's entrepreneurial ecosystem. Why is that? Is it because we all use technology and therefore we're, we're connected, our voices are amplified? That's a great question. So from my perspective, I think that we've limited entrepreneurship in terms of it being high tech. Um, less than 2% of all businesses that start up are technology at the core of their business model, but yet 98% of the service providers out there are, are focused on supporting that 2%. And I think that that's why it's so small. Um, we actually have started moving away from the word entrepreneur and entrepreneurship to business builder, um, trying to encourage. And it's less intimidating to someone who doesn't see themselves as an entrepreneur, even if they are an entrepreneur. And so we've started using different languaging. And um, I've been working on, a, on an article. I don't know when it'll come out, which is entrepreneurship is dead. I really believe that the word entrepreneurship and, and, and is like paradigm shift was back in the late 
late 80s. But you're right. There's so much that's going into now the support system around a certain type of entrepreneurship right. that it, it's lost its uh, it's lost its relevance to many people, and they can't relate to it. Don't quite frankly, it's 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 not relatable to them because they don't they don't see themselves as an entrepreneur because what we promote we, on covers of magazine are Mark Zuckerberg's, Oprah Winfrey's, and so it's it's billionaires growing huge businesses. They're less than you know point zero zero one percent of those that are successful, and yet the reality is. What is it? Eighty-six percent of the business is small business in our communities. Right. They're entrepreneurs within that space as well, but they don't see themselves. You're absolutely way. right. We we it's almost like we glamorized lottery winners. You know, the I call them victory lane entrepreneurs. Now you're bringing this program, which is operating in sixty countries around the United States, mm -hmm. and you're specifically bringing it to the D.C. region. What is it about Washington D.C. that makes you interested in taking this program and applying it here in in this market? Yeah, so we've partnered with the eBay Foundation on this, and it's it's running in four cities. So we're in Berlin, Brooklyn, Mumbai, and Washington, D.C. So it is a global competition. It is a pilot, and the goal is to expand it next year. And so we'd be running it here again in D.C. We have a shared vision with eBay, and that is inclusive entrepreneurship, empowering anybody, anyone, any background, any education level to design, test, and build a business. That also means not just people who are starting a business with an idea, but this startup cup here in D.C. is um, is is focused on any if somebody has an existing business up to three years and they are looking for ways to get more traction or grow and expand their business, they're also welcome to submit into this uh, into the competition. So, if I'm starting a dry cleaner or a consulting business or a tech startup. You're telling me that the resources Startup Cup are equally available and equally Correct. useful. Yeah, we work. We've worked with every conceivable industry um, in the world. Yeah, so that is counterintuitive, uh, at least to the impression that I get from talking with other people who mentor here in town. What are they missing? Um, we're we're always having to retrain mentors, actually, and and that's part of our goal. So we part of what Griffin Works does is we have a global network of over 3,500 certified mentors around our methodology and. Um, we evaluate entrepreneurs and business builders on how coachable they are, how well they take action, and how well they work together as a team. Those three factors we've discovered are far more important than their the quality of the business model, the feasibility of their financial plan, because if they can't execute and work together uh, and take advice from other people, then their odds of success are like 72% reduced. It's interesting to me as you describe it, and I learn about your program, it's very value-based in a way, it's very human-centric. Mm -hmm. Does it frustrate you that when you start to talk about things like empathy or inclusiveness, that for some people it becomes a very political conversation? Does it make it harder to advance your mission? I think that that's our secret sauce, is, um, is empathy, is um, authenticity, is caring probably more than we should in some cases. And so um, when, when you go from Cambodia to Costa Rica to Pakistan to Bangladesh to Egypt— you have cultural nuances, but what I've discovered is everybody pretty much is the same, and they want the same thing. They want their own independence. They want their own freedom. They want to be able to make their own decision, man, woman. Um, and building a business and having your own business is the ability to create your own job, make a difference, showcase what's possible, and become an example to your community that they can see as somebody, if they can do it, then I can do it. And I think that that's a lot of what we're 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 good at. I I, I think that generally and overall, um, 
people have a hard time being authentic and who they are and, and, and genuine authentic people I think are attracted to each other. And then people who maybe haven't seen a really authentic person many times are also attracted to that person and they may not even understand why. But I think that being centered, knowing who you are, um, what it is that you want to do and make a difference in the world and then putting yourself out there at risk to some degree, I can tell you at great risk sometimes, um, and embracing the unknown. I call it the unknowables of life. And, and the, the more you get comfortable being uncomfortable, uh, the more you can discover who you are and what it is that makes you tick and follow that passion you have. And we used to, we used to be all about growing entrepreneurs. We now, our tagline is, and it's not just the tagline, it's a mission, igniting human potential. And we do that through all of our entrepreneurial programmings. But I think ultimately, that's what we see we're doing. We're igniting human potential around the world. And, and I think that we're excited to have that come here to Washington, D.C. If anybody out there is looking to start a business, it has an existing business, they want to take to the next level, they want to go to ebay.startupcup.com. Again, that's ebay.startupcup.com. And uh, it, submissions are open until May 22nd. And then we'll be holding what's called an Extreme Build a Business Weekend. It's our first one. We've held hundreds of these around the world. It's our first one in the United States, and I'm super excited about it. We'll have between 75 and 100 businesses there, 50 mentors, over two days of high-intensity business building. And then we'll identify the 25 that will continue for the next five months into the um, acceleration program. You're going to be a great resource. So Sean Griffin, you'll be hearing more from him, I'm sure, in coming years. CEO of Griffin Works, doing great work here in the nation's capital. Thank you so much. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Eagle Bank. How do you get to be number one in the D.C. area? Eagle Bank did it by putting relationships first. Flexible, involved, responsive, strong, and trusted. Eagle Bank's goal is your success. Connecting the devices in your home, gathering the data, and doing something with it is the focus of a growing number of entrepreneurs here in the D.C. region. An individual who's been a well, basically, the head of that trend for many years is Bob Marshall. He's CEO of Earth Networks. Bob, thanks for taking the time. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, let's just begin with what is Earth Networks doing? Earth Networks is, is fundamentally a big data company. So we are about connecting sensors to the Internet and collecting massive amounts of data and turning it into intelligence. And, you know, our heritage has been uh, operating the largest weather sensor network in the world, and we've been doing that for 20 years, and we've expanded from there uh, and continued to add different sensors to our network. So we're collecting data from weather sensors. Now we're collecting data from cameras. We have the world's most advanced lightning detection network. And now we've taken that data and turned it into intelligence for the home, and we're collecting data from the Internet of Things in the home and connected home sensors as well. Well, people when they hear collecting data, will start to get stressed out in the current yeah. political environment right. in particular. What, what are the advantages of collecting large amounts of, say, weather data or lightning strike data? Why does it, why does it matter? Yeah, I mean, data is the, is the key to prediction at the end of the day. I think any scientist, any meteorologist will tell you that more data allows them as individuals or the computer models to make better predictions. So when it comes to that weather forecast, you know, for the next few hours and even going out for the next week or two, the more data, the better data that goes into those models, the better that prediction is going to be. 
So when it comes to the storm warnings, it's been lots of severe weather over the last uh, week or two, tornadoes around the country. And obviously early warning for those kind of things is critically important to keep people safe and, and save lives. And uh, at the end of the day, those, those warnings get better with better data. So we are one of the leading providers of data uh, to NOAA and the National Weather Service through our unique public-private partnership. So big data is better intelligence and better forecasts and predictions. You touched on that. Let's let's expand on that a little bit. This concept of public-private partnership, a private company working with yeah. government. That, that's one of the hallmarks, I think, of DC entrepreneurship. How did this come about, and and how did it help you grow your business? Yeah, I think we're in a very unique situation where I think we pioneered the public-private partnership, particularly when it comes to data. I mean, this was not a given uh, 15, 20 years ago when the company started. Uh, in those days, uh, the National Weather Service operated their own sensor networks and collected their own data, uh, but always had a desire for more data because more data is better forecasts and predictions. Uh, and, you know, we were establishing a private network uh, that is now the largest network of weather stations in the world. And, you know, they, you know, in the early days weren't necessarily that comfortable with the idea of, of collecting data from a private company. But when you look at it now, it's not only do they collect data from us, but we have a consortium of, you know, 35 different partners, uh, private companies, universities around the country that all have some kind of weather sensor network. And we uh, collect all that data into one location and provide it to the National Weather Service. And it's a mission critical thing for the National Weather Service today. So they get more data, they get better data, and they get it for less cost because as a, you know, we actually monetize our network many different ways. So the federal government only has to pay a small fraction of what it would cost them to do it on their own. And for a while you had what the Weatherbug app or something that, that I think I used it for many years. And yeah. many of our listeners did. That was you. Yeah, that was. Yeah. So we created a, a digital media business back, you know, when the internet and apps really started going crazy in 2000, we launched the Weatherbug app on your desktop and then, then it morphed really into all on the mobile phone. And that was the, the idea that individuals could get better neighborhood-level weather information from our weather sensors and forecasts. And, you know, that grew very substantially. We had, you know, 25 million people a month use the Weatherbug app. And, uh, but that was a digital media business. And, and you know, uh, a few months ago, we decided that uh, we wanted to sell the Weatherbug consumer business. And we did that back in uh, November. And the idea was that uh, we wanted to take the proceeds from that and really focus back on what is our most core competency. And our most core competency is sensors, collecting data from sensors, turning it into intelligence. And we have great data scientists and engineers in the company. And the digital media piece was a very different kind of thing and, and felt like we couldn't do both of those things well. And we wanted to really focus on the data. I always find it really interesting to talk with entrepreneurs at the moment where they've made that decision. So I hope you don't mind. You had a, you had a, an, an outlet that had a traction. I mean, 25 right. million subscribers is no mean feat in this right. world. And you've made a strategic decision to go in a different market direction. Right. So what is it about sensors and the Internet of Things and the connectivity that causes an experienced, proven business person like yourself to pivot? What, what Why are you doing it? You know, it's a lot about focus because, you know, there's only so many things you can do. I mean, we're a medium-sized company. We're 150 people or so. And, and you know, you can only do so many things well. And uh, we had done the digital media thing very well for a long time. But media, that, that business is really all about scale. And 25 million is fantastic, right? You know, but Facebook has a billion people, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're selling advertising to marketers and things like that, 
you know, you're comp we were competing against Facebook and Google and Twitter, right? And that's a, you know, that's a challenging environment, even though we had 25 million people, which is great. Uh, so, uh, so I think you look at it strategically and you say, you know, how can we focus better and focus on areas where we know we have very unique capability and differentiated uh, technology and skills and and that's all around sensors and data and the internet of things so your last business or not your current business but the yeah. last manifestation clearly touched consumers lives in a very tangible yeah. way how are some of the ways that how is what you're going to do now going to make my life as a as a homeowner or a consumer different yeah i think we're still at the end of the day the the end user of most of our data uh, is consumers, uh, and many times you get that information through some other outlet, uh, media outlet, or it could be a business-to-business -business, uh, application. But you know, you take a look at the tornadoes over the last couple of weeks, and you know our network has the capability to double the warning time on tornadoes. I mean, so that the the normal now for the National Weather Service is 15, 16, 17 minutes of warning for a tornado. And we've deployed technology in our lightning detection network that it automates the process of generating warnings and incredibly nearly doubles that warning time. So we are working very closely with the National Weather Service to integrate our data and that capability into their day-to-day -day operations. So it's our latest innovation kind of on the weather side. And, you know, the fact is that if we can double the tornado warning times in partnership with the National Weather Service, that has a very direct impact on consumers. I mean, we're not doing it directly. We're doing it through our partnership with the National Weather Service. Um, but, you know, we're thrilled to work on something that's really important like that and, and can really save lives. How about connectivity in the home, you know, making uh, appliances smarter or work together better? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. We we definitely have evolved quite a bit in that way. Uh, and, the, and the connection is really, a, it started as a weather connection because... Uh, weather uh, drives half of the energy that is used in your home today. So that's half of the energy is used by your heating and cooling system. And obviously your heating and cooling system is completely dependent and working to keep you comfortable in the weather. So, you know, we had the most, we have the most local neighborhood level weather data. And uh, our data scientists said, hey, we think we can turn in this into intelligence around the home. We can take the weather data when we collect data from a connected thermostat, a Nest or a Honeywell or, you know, those kind of things, then we can actually build a model of every home. So we can tell how your home, your home specifically, how efficient it is. We can tell whether it, uh, it's got leaky windows and doors, how good the insulation is, and then take that and build a model of the home and send instructions to the thermostat every day. Your individual thermostat will get a different set of instructions than your neighbor's. And when we do that, we can actually save 16% uh, additional energy, uh, and which is meaningful money, hundreds of dollars a year for the average homeowner. Uh, and obviously, it's, it's fewer carbon emissions and everything else. So, but it was the weather connection originally. But as connected devices in the home materialize, like thermostats, that's just more data. If we can get our hands on that data and mash it up with the weather data, and turn it into intelligence. That's how we got started uh, in that business. Well, it was great having you in the studio. Bob Marshall, CEO of Earth Networks. Congratulations on your progress so far. Thank you, sir.
Preparing the citizens for tomorrow is a mission that many believe is important, but few actually are spending the time to work at and get after. Jack McCarthy is our next guest. He's CEO and president of Apple Tree Institute for Education Innovation, and he is very much involved in how do we create citizens with our children's education. Jack, tell us all a bit about Apple Tree. What do you guys do? So Apple Tree consists of a research institute as well as a network of publicly funded uh, charter preschools here in Washington, D.C. And we also won a federal investing in innovation grant to codify, document, and develop a um, comprehensive early instructional model that includes what to teach, how to teach, and how to know it's working. And it's something that we use in all of our schools and a number of other schools in Washington, D.C. use it. We educate about 2,500 kids out of the 14,000 three and four-year-olds in the city. So you have a big influence in how our, our next generation of children is gonna be raised. What is What it kind of uh, values and life attitudes are you trying to inculcate when you talk about citizenship and life skills with, uh, were they three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds? Three and four-year-olds. And really, I, I think the thing we're trying to do is to ensure that more kids, regardless of the background in which they grew up, get to fully participate in um, education, careers, and life. And a key to that is developing really good language and literacy skills, good vocabulary, good numeracy skills, um, and the life skills that are identified with, uh, or positive behaviors that are identified with success in school careers and the workplace. Things like being able to pay attention to instruction, to follow directions, to take turns, to share, most, most important, to persist when frustrated, to solve problems with words, those kinds of things that a lot of adults could really benefit from uh, today as well. But these things, when all brought together, really prepare kids to enter K, K through 12, um, likely to thrive. It's, I think, pretty significant because as you describe those life skills, I, I do think that we are in a very interesting moment in time where Things like being able to make eye contact, communicate cogently, to be able to shake hands, uh, just to live within the unwritten rules of society is becoming more and more important as as our society you know, gets more technologically adept. But yet, children are inundated with media images of people who don't play by any of those rules and are lionized. How do you get, in a world of media pervasiveness, how do you get the kids to understand that that's not the best way to succeed. It's a, it's a big problem with role models, as I think you've, uh, we don't have enough great role models today, and hopefully we can get more. But I think quality education really comes around, it really depends on the environment within which it is, uh, it takes place. You know, we have centers where there are warm, nurturing relationships with well-prepared adults that really have a, a well-articulated program of instruction and they receive a lot of support and coaching in providing that, that takes kids and helps them develop trusting relationships with adults, which is really important because a lot of kids maybe have one parent, uh, sometimes no parents, a grandparent, not an uncle. They're, in, um, they're growing up in, in surroundings where they just haven't had uh, the kind of experiences that we know really are important for, you know, strong neural connections and to develop um, the way that successful kids will develop. And so what we try to do through our time with these children, 
sometimes from 7.30 in the morning till 6 o'clock at night, is try to provide that kind of experience that helps them develop so that they can have those kinds of warm, nurturing, engaging uh, relationships with other students, with other people, and, you know, try to get the maximum that they can get out of uh, school, careers, and life. As you describe it, I hear a lot of intentionality. A lot of intentionality. Around creating empathy and understanding. And so is is education an art or a science? I think it's, it's a little bit of both. It What I've learned is that it's not one or two big levers. It's more like 101% solutions choreographed and organized in a setting where it can be done successfully again and again and again. And really providing highly personalized um, education to kids as well as to teachers. Because um, when you think about it, we know science tells us and research tells us that all children are capable of learning at high standards. There have been studies that were done in the 70s where children from disadvantaged backgrounds with a, with a single tutor can be educated to the highest levels. You know, they, it's, it's called the two standard deviation problem. The problem that we have in education is it works like a conveyor belt. So kids get moved along whether they've mastered the, uh, the standards or not. We have a competency-based model so that kids make progress and they, they advance when they've mastered the material. And this is where we use technologies as a force multiplier, if you will, for all of these activities, all of this data gathering, all of the processes that really provide teachers with what they need to deliver highly personalized instruction to children and then to manage um, the succeeding um, instruction and uh, experiences that culminate in someone being very well educated by the time they're entering kindergarten. And it's the same with teachers, using the same data and the same experiences to build um, highly proficient teachers in early education. There's a huge shortage right now of teachers who are prepared to do this kind of work with young children, particularly those from disadvantaged backgrounds. I would imagine that with your role at an apple tree and being in these classrooms that you have amazing moments of you know, getting to read to, to a child or, or seeing children interact in positive ways. What's the moment in the last week or so that has put a smile on your face? You thought, God, I'm glad I do this job. It's so funny. A couple of blocks from here, I was over at the supermarket uh, checking out and there was a little girl uh, there. And, um, you know, I, I talked with her. Her mother was uh, in the line and she said, you're Mr. Appletree. And she had attended our Columbia Heights uh, preschool. And I had been in one of the classes on a tour or something like that. But just to have a small child look and say, you're Mr. Appletree to me, you know, that only has to happen once or twice, you know, a year to make your day. And she had a great experience at her school. Her mother was very happy with um, the education that they had gotten, and they were very engaged. So now it's going to happen to you two times in one day. Mr. Appletree, <laughs> Jack McCarthy, CEO and president of Appletree Institute for Education and Innovation. It was great having you, and we're really lucky in the D.C. region to have folks like you educating our children. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Appreciate it. That's our show for this week. Our executive producer is Tracy Manigan. Our online contributors are Michael Hoffman, Barbara Ulrich, and Candace Pye. Music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington, the power to get things done. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. 
What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. 